1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'm going to be the host of the channel today. So today we're going to be talking to Nicholas Thomas, the director of the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge, and he's the author of the new book Voyagers, the Settlement of the Pacific. Uh, I really enjoyed reading this book. It's a wonderful introduction for non-specialists to the settlement of the Pacific, hence the title. So, um, Nick, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's it's great to have you here.
1: Greetings, and it's really nice to be in conversation with someone in Honolulu. It makes me feel as though I'm back in the Pacific rather than in North London.
0: Mm, Well, you are certainly a scholar who, although you're based in the UK, you have a long history of working in the Pacific. And uh, you've probably spent more time in more places in the Pacific than I have, I know. Uh, I I think you began originally as a a historian of the Pacific. Is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about your early training and how you got interested in the Pacific? And then maybe we can move on to where this book sits in the larger arc of your career. Well, in fact,
1: it's a somewhat longer story than that. Um, I grew up in Sydney in Australia. But Um, After I finished secondary school, I spent time in Europe, and while I was in Britain, I volunteered on a number of archaeological excavations and became very enthusiastic, completely entranced by that discipline. Back in Australia, I went to the Australian National University, and I ended up doing a joint degree in anthropology and archaeology I think I drifted away a little from archaeology, which seemed very science-oriented. I was more interested in people and how uh, cultures and societies developed over time. And that actually drew me to, to uh, Pacific history, but always very much in dialogue with uh, archaeology, anthropology, thinking about the deeper past, thinking about anthropological theory, thinking about culture and politics.
0: And it seems to me like one of the hallmarks of your career is um, your keen appreciation of material culture. My wife is an art historian, and um, I know she just, she loves things. She She's fascinated by material culture and Uh, its beauty, the techniques that go into to produce it, the social relations embedded within it, the aesthetics value. That's, I think that's been part of your career as well, the history, the culture, and then also the the material aspect. Is that right?
1: That is right. In fact, I didn't do anything art or artifact related for my doctorate. Um, That was focused more on the local political formations in the Marquesas in Eastern Polynesia at the time of early contact, early colonial experience. I was also actually very engaged by feminist theory and feminist anthropology at that time, partly because that was a very live area of debate around the ANU at the time I was a graduate student. So all those wider themes were important. But after um, I uh, finished my PhD, I wanted to work um, in a more um, contemporary um, Pacific setting. So I left the archive behind for a little while and did some research in Fiji and at the same time got very interested in material culture in the... European art made in the Pacific over the colonial period, um, but also then subsequently in contemporary Indigenous art. And I guess I've always found it very rewarding to tack between these different areas. In some ways, the archaeology seems a totally different subject to the art being made by Pacific Islander migrants in New Zealand. But in fact, some of those migrant painters and sculptors are very interested in the archaeology and bring their own perspectives to the Pacific past, to that deeper history. So all of these issues have been connected through conversations I've had with artists in New Zealand and elsewhere.
0: Yes. And I think one of the interesting things about this book is that Uh, people get images of the canoes and uh, Tupaya's chart, which we'll talk a little bit about in the future. We we see the objects which uh, were part of this process of voyaging and settlement of the Pacific.
1: Voyaging was not just about navigation or vessels. Those canoes were art forms in themselves and many of the things that came with them, their accoutrements, the paddles, the sails, the fiber were all aesthetic objects in themselves.
0: Yes. And um, you, uh, uh, for people who do not know, I should say um, Nick is uh, a very uh, humble person as a scholar and wears his learning very lightly. But uh, he's written over 50 books and uh, is remarkably well read in this history. So, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting when uh, it came to this current book, was that you're able to bring a lot of this knowledge, both of material culture, of history, um, uh, of archaeology, to telling a story for people of the settlement of the Pacific. I imagine some people might think of the Pacific and the settlement of the Pacific as a haphazard process. They might look at that map with a vast expanse of blue and the small specks of land and say, you know, how could anyone have ever settled that? But in this book, you show us that um, that the settlement of these islands was uh, an incredible human achievement and that it it demonstrated incredible skill. Can you tell us a little bit about why that was and and, uh, what the story of this voyage, voyaging and settlement was?
1: Yes. And I think one point I'd just like to make first is that I'm not a professional archaeologist and I'm actually full of admiration for some books I drew upon by archaeologists who've literally spent decades investigating sites and um, other traces of human settlement um, in the Pacific, scholars like Patrick Kirch and Matthew Spriggs, and um, their works are extraordinarily rich for the detail um, the, the, the complexities of that archaeological record. But I think what I wanted to do, in a way, was step back um, from some of that technical complexity and try and offer a broader brush view of this incredible chapter in human history, which is one that I guess I've been aware of ever since I was a student of archaeology, In Canberra in the late 70s and early 1980s. But I suppose I felt the more that I reflected, um, the more absolutely extraordinary this part of the human story seemed to be. Particularly because if we think more broadly uh, about the history of our species and the longer-term history of humanity in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas. People have, um, throughout that history, been continent-based, and they reached those different parts of the world basically by walking over land. So the story of the Pacific is something that is fundamentally different in human history, and human experience. The Pacific Islands are really the only parts of the world that people settled by making long-distance voyages in boats. They started making those voyages at a time when we have no real archaeological records for boats from any part of the world. Uh, We presume that people going back 30,000, 40,000 years maybe earlier, um, who lived around coasts probably made small vessels of some kind um, so that they could fish. But the sense that people would make bigger boats that they could use to deliberately traverse um, a wider sea passage in order to establish themselves somewhere new um, seems really to have been completely unprecedented. Um, yet that is what people did um, about 30,000 years ago uh, when they moved away from the landmass of New Guinea and started settling the islands we refer to as the Bismarck Islands, New Britain, New Ireland, to the north and um east of New Guinea uh, at that time. And what they did involved venturing out into the sea and traversing passages that were so broad that at certain points in their voyage, they could see neither the land behind them nor the land ahead. Um, So that was an extraordinary, unprecedented thing in the way people anywhere in the world had engaged with environment and taken themselves into a new realm. And that kept on happening and happened in a more intense way, a more accelerated way from 5,000 or so years ago when the people we call Lapita people, after a distinctive pottery style, moved from uh, Formosa from Taiwan um, down into that same area to the north and east of New Guinea and then moved very rapidly uh, east and out into the Pacific. And they made voyages of hundreds of kilometers, in some cases thousands, um, across open ocean. Um, over an extraordinarily short time frame, um, relatively few generations. And the question of quite why they did that and how has been debated. It has puzzled people, European mariners and others, who encountered the evidence for these voyages, the evidence being the fact that people who were clearly related had reached those islands, it's puzzled um, those outsiders um, for centuries and also been much debated by islanders themselves uh, who are, I guess, increasingly proud and very understandably so of the extraordinary uh, knowledge, navigational knowledge of their ancestors and of the incredible Achievements that those maritime voyages represented,
0: and in the book you quote from several um, journals and uh, reports of early European explorers, who are immediately struck by the incredible capacity for sailing and the incredible knowledge that Pacific Islanders have. They, it seems that somehow, uh, people in the 1950s and 60s in social sciences uh, who proposed that uh, Pacific settlement must have happened by accidental people catching on logs or something in a storm and being washed onto Hawaii. People who made those kinds of claims weren't aware or forgot about these early historical reports where people like Captain Cook and others say very clearly, um, Pacific Islanders have an incredible knowledge of the sea and are incredible uh, at sailing. And this was something that the Europeans noticed very, very early on.
1: Yes. And it's often assumed now that those early European travelers and explorers were ethnocentric and blinkered and, um, you know, often racist in their responses to indigenous culture. And uh, many of them were. And um, people like Captain Cook and William Dampier had Um, certainly stereotypic views of um, Pacific cultures in some respects. But, of course, in this context, because they were sailors themselves, um, because Cook, for example, had um, basically spent most of his life on water, um, he had an intimate sense of what um, travel over water involved. He was absolutely prepared to be astonished by the big double canoes that he witnessed in Tonga, uh, canoes, sailing canoes that he witnessed elsewhere. He could admire the way they were handled, he could admire their versatility, and he was also of course interested in understanding what the islanders he encountered knew Um, about navigation, what they knew about the locations of other islands in that part of the ocean, how they thought they could be reached, how they travelled back and forth. Uh, Similarly, Dampier, much earlier uh, in the late 17th century, had far less experience of the Pacific than Cook, but did, at Guam, study... Uh, sailing canoes very closely, and declared them the best-made boats of any in the world. He was also interested in the speed in which they could be sailed, and recorded that a passage could be made to Manila or to a neighbouring island in a in a period of time that appeared remarkably short. So, because they were sailors themselves, they were attuned to observe boats closely and inquire after the ways they were navigated.
0: You mentioned um, uh, cultural connection between islands that um, these early European explorers noted. It's, it's remarkable. Captain Cook um, takes a passenger on his boat who is originally from Tahiti, and then they land in New Zealand, and the, the Tahitian guy gets off the boat and just begins speaking to people. And they can understand him, and this this is absolutely gobsmacking to Cook, who is imagining being in England and then, you know, moving a thousand miles away to Moscow or something like that. And of course, he would not be able to understand the language. So they also saw this um, intercultural connection uh, that uh, that we may have uh, forgot about, or that commentators since then might not have noticed as well. Is that right?
1: Yes, and. The relative proximity of the cultures and languages itself reflects the comparatively short history of human settlement in Eastern Polynesia. Uh, people left um, the the uh, Western Polynesia, Fiji area, relatively late um, in into. Um, uh, close to 500, 900 AD, um, they settled places like uh, the Cook Islands, the Society Islands, the Marquesas, Rapa Nui, and later Hawaii in a relatively short time timeframe um, so that the Polynesians who live on those islands now were all, in a sense, you know, one people in, in um, emerging from that Western Polynesian region. Um, less than 2,000 years ago. And consequently, their languages remained um, relatively close. They remain mutually intelligible. intelligible. They're they're as close, for example, as Dutch and German, um, maybe even a bit closer in some cases. So, of course, when an islander travelled from one place to another, um, they could be readily understood. And there were also cultural traits like um, Polynesian tattoo that uh, Cook and others recognised as they went from one island to the next. It was clear to them that these people were closely related. And in particular, when Cook reached uh, Rapa Nui, Easter Island in 1774, Rapa Nui is much further from uh, the society islands and uh, that, in a sense, core area in eastern Polynesia. It is located at a great distance, and that, I think, was a moment of complete astonishment for him. And he wrote in his journal that he was baffled that people had somehow traversed, what he called almost a quarter of the globe. He was aware that they did not have iron tools, but somehow they had made these canoes that uh, were what he called fit for distant navigation. And I'm not sure exactly what he meant by distant navigation, but um, it was clearly a voyage of something like the extent that British navigators might undertake at that time that would... Circle round continents, so uh, um, he had a very profound sense of those cultural affinities and their significance.
0: Yes, this is the concept that you call in in your book um, "Inter Islanders," that people are not merely uh, islanders connected to a single place or Pacific Islanders, but they're part of a of a, a larger community of intra Islanders. Can you tell me a little bit about that concept and what it means? Well, I
1: think one of my inspirations has been um, the work of Apelli Haofa, who who was uh, really a a remarkable man, an anthropologist, a novelist, um, a cultural leader, um, an extraordinary Pacific intellectual. And he developed a particular perspective, which I think owed a good deal to his own biography. His parents were Tongan Methodists, and they were missionaries, um, Methodist missionaries in um, the small islands to the off the tip of Papua New Guinea, a place called Misima. That's where he was born. So he grew up as a Tongan among. Papuans and spoke the local language and uh, was relocated after the war to Australia and then to Fiji when he went to school. He was subsequently trained as an anthropologist and undertook fieldwork in New Guinea and then did all sorts of positions before um, becoming a a a professor at the University of the South Pacific. But I think it's very significant that his experience of the Pacific was as cosmopolitan as that. Um, He has famously talked about how he became depressed by the sense of the Pacific he got through disciplines like development economics. There was this sort of vast um, watery void with these tiny dots on it Those dots were islands. They were economically unsustainable. It made the Pacific look hopeless. Um, And somehow in thinking through that, he produced a far more affirmative view. Uh, He used the term the sea of islands to get away from this sense of um, a watery void and evoke rather interconnected islands that people regularly travelled between. He overtly acknowledged that to some extent that was a romantic vision, but um, it was also a vision grounded in the history of the Pacific, the experience of people in the Pacific, the very dense networks of exchange and sociality that connected archipelagos like those of North Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, or um, a set of islands like the Marquesas or the societies in eastern Polynesia. What we know about the lives of Pacific Islanders in the period leading up to European contact and subsequently is that people were very frequently traveling for trade, for exchange, for Uh, political alliance for ritual, for ceremony. So uh, most groups on most islands were somehow constantly connected with people on other islands. And that seemed to me to be a critical theme. Pacific life was about building these relationships that extended Beyond and between islands that extended even beyond archipelagos and that constantly involved uh, voyaging and interaction.
0: Yes, his distinction, I think, is between uh, islands in a far sea, which is a vision of the ocean separating islands, which are isolated, versus what he calls our sea of islands. Uh, where the, the uh, ocean connects people and it enables travel, and it, it enables voyaging and connection. So if people are interested in uh, looking more into this work, they can Google Our Sea of Islands. Um, it's available online in, in many places for free. Yeah. Uh, did you have it? you must have known Halofa. I, I've never had a chance to meet him. I always like to ask people who, who, uh, who have had a chance to meet these famous people, What was he like as a person? Uh, You know, so many of us have read his work. What were your impressions of him if you had a chance to meet him?
1: Yes. uh, I can't say that I knew him well, but I'd encountered him a number of times at, uh, well, I think very memorably at an anthropology conference um, at Hilo on the big island of Hawaii in the 90s. Um, But in fact, I spent most time with him when he brought a group of artists from the Oceania Centre at the University of South Pacific, um, a centre that he'd established and that very much exemplified and built that vision of the Sea of Islands. He brought a group of artists called the Red Wave Collective to London. Um, They had an exhibition um, he'd actually invited me to speak at the opening of that exhibition and it was a huge honor actually to be able to celebrate those painters whose work was uh, I think really saying that that um, the future of the Pacific will be defined by Pacific people themselves. Um, it, it was um, imaginative and, and compelling but we had very interesting conversations um, over the couple of weeks that he was in London. Um, at that time, he knew about Tupia's map, of course, but he actually didn't know that Tupia had also produced a set of drawings during Cook's first voyage. Remarkable drawings of marai, of um, musical performers, of people interacting and it was a huge privilege for me actually to be able to take him into the British Library and show him that group of drawings. I had the chance also to interview him at that time and it was really fascinating actually talking to him about his um, earlier life and study. One of the things he talked about in A fascinating way was how some of the teachers at the school he attended in Fiji brought together Western education with a kind of Pacific storytelling tradition. And I think that's actually the point at which an English teacher introduced him to V.S. Naipaul, who's, I think, sort of rather satiric kind of aesthetic. Um, how Ophir enjoyed and absorbed, but he also actually said that um, they they were exposed to Conrad and Melville, and I think he loved those writers. He really enjoyed um, that take on the sea and the drama of maritime experience. So he was an extraordinarily um, imaginative and wide ranging intellectual and an immensely generous person. It's a huge loss to um, the the Pacific studies community that he died as young as he did. I, I, I must admit, I can't recall his age, but he it, it, it was only in his mid-60s, I think.
0: You know, I do remember now uh, reading that interview that you did with him. He said that um, he fell in love with uh, literature at that school because the teacher read Moby Dick out loud. That, that that was the, the mode of literature, was that they would sit there and listen to him read Moby Dick out loud in its entirety in the course of a term. It's remarkable. Yeah,
1: yeah, remarkable.
0: Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, we have some of this prehistory that shows that there are common linguistic and cultural connections across the Pacific. Um, and uh, the people were in some sense not merely uh islanders connected to a single island, but intra-islanders. But one of the things about Ha'ofa that you point out is that um, he was not interested in a, a, a kind of a politics of primordialism. He didn't see the Pacific as united by a common culture and heritage, which which had to be preserved and should not change. He saw the Pacific as as quite dynamic and also open to novel influences, uh, something that could be expansive and incorporate new influences. And I think I think that's got to be part of the story of the peopling of the Pacific as well, in terms of how Pacific Islanders like Tupaya uh, became part of the uh, projects, became entangled in the biographical projects of the first explorers as well. Can, can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yes, I think... Um... There's a particular story that's really quite important here, and it is that uh, although Cook's voyages are the really famous ones of that period in the late 18th century, in fact there were two navigators that came um, before him, um, Carteret, who sailed through the, the Tuamotus, and um, Wallace, who was actually the first European to um, encounter people on Tahiti. Um, And they're important in part because some of the crew on Cook's first voyage had sailed either with Carteret or Wallace or, in fact, with both. And so even when Cook first arrived in Tahiti, he had some men on that ship. Who had a sort of smattering of basic Tahitian? They'd collected vocabularies. They had some, you know, rudimentary capacity to communicate. Because on that first voyage, Cook was um, there to observe the transit of Venus. Um, The the stay was extended. They had to set up a camp set up the context for their astronomical observations and so on. they were there for three months and that meant that there was actually a great deal of interaction Um, there was a great deal of curiosity notoriously there was a lot of sexual interaction um, after the astronomical observations were out of the way cook and banks made a tour of the island they walked right around it over a number of days Um, they really um, became comparatively intimate with local people. Um, And the other famous part of this story is that um, Tupaya, who was from um, um, another island, from Raiatea, but had relocated owing to various political alliances. He had relocated to Tahiti. He was clearly an intellectual, a priest, um, a navigator, um, um, a a prominent individual. He was interested in what Banks and Cook were doing. He spent a good deal of time with them. He clearly shared a great deal of information. Um, So there was a a sort of quasi-ethnographic exchange of knowledge and understanding at that moment, at the very beginnings of uh, European contact with that part of the Pacific. And that process of interaction and knowledge exchange continued in in fits and starts. And there were times when islanders were extraordinarily generous with their understanding of uh, traditional histories navigational routes, navigational techniques, and so that information was gradually drawn into European commentary on the Pacific, often sometimes in somewhat scrambled expression, Um, but it nevertheless entered that archive and can be recovered and reflected upon today.
0: I suppose one narrative that's out there uh, in popular opinion would be that uh, Pacific Islanders were discovered by Europeans or that Europeans discovered Pacific Islanders. And that narrative could take a, a triumphalist form, emphasizing the amazing ability of uh, Europeans to gain an enlightenment and knowledge of the world. Or it could take a tragic form uh, as a, a sort of a critique of colonialism or expansion, and um, uh, you know, at the expense of islanders. But the story you're telling is is one in which the Europeans' agency is just, just part of the picture. That the agency of Pacific Islanders was uh, entangled from the very beginning with these uh, European attempts at exploration. And that we can now go and uh, find proof of that by revisiting uh, logs, revisiting journals, revisiting uh, museum collections, and seeing the way in which this uh, knowledge about the Pacific that Europeans had was not just the result of European uh, efforts for good or for ill, but deeply, deeply entangled with the sophisticated knowledge which Pacific Islanders like like Tupaya had.
1: Yes. Um, and in um, other books like A Comparative History of Empire in the Pacific, I wrote about 10 years ago, Islanders, I've tried to foreground the sense in which the colonial encounter was not just a sort of collision between globalizing Europeans and um, Islanders who were sort of bound in a kind of customary regime. I think it's rather extraordinary that Islanders were themselves extraordinarily cosmopolitan, Um, at a very early stage in that whole sequence of interactions. You had islanders traveling to Europe as early as 1800, and and before, in fact, um, the business of missionizing the Pacific, converting Pacific islanders, so to speak, to Christianity, was something that was actually largely undertaken by islanders themselves, not by um, white missionaries. So this was very much um, an interactive process. And in the same sense, the the kind of knowledge of the Pacific that emerged in disciplines like folklore and, and more particularly subsequently in anthropology was actually a body of knowledge that islanders actively contributed to.
0: Yes, we see that in the example you mentioned earlier of how uh, parents, who were... Um, missionaries, or I guess missionary teachers, they were known as, uh, who are responsible for bringing Christianity and being very active in uh, MISIMA. So uh, we already see that in some of the examples of the things that we've we've talked about earlier. Um, uh, I also uh, remember at the uh, recent Pacific History Conference, which you helped organize in Cambridge in was it 2019?
1: 2018.
0: 2018. Boy, it's in the in the COVID world, these things uh, seem like they uh, happened quite a long time ago, um, or maybe more recently because I said 2019. Um, one of the sort of uh, things that you always do when you go to these conferences is try to see what the, the hot new thinker is or the hot new approach. And I remember at that conference thinking that, that the hot new theoretical thinker for the Pacific was Tupaya, a man who'd been dead for a century Um, Because people found his work so stimulating and there had been new work attempting to understand uh, his chart and uh, his uh, remarkable map of the Pacific. And you talk about uh, a recent paper uh, showing that uh, if we look at this uh, famous map, which has many, many islands on it, which demonstrates the incredible geographical knowledge of Pacific Islanders, and we read that map and we imagine ourselves in the room where Tupai is trying to explain the map and how it works then we can get a better sense of the map and and what it means and we can interpret it i don't want you to um go into more detail than you'd like to cuz the the act of interpreting this map is extremely technical but can you just maybe tell us a little bit about how that map is an example of the co-production that you're talking about
1: yes we know that uh Tupaya, of course, um, Tupaya wanted to join the Endeavour's voyage. Um, He hoped to go to um, Britain to visit the places that Cook and Banks and the others he had encountered came from. Tragically, he died in um, Batavia, what's now more or less Jakarta, on the passage home with a lot of other people on the voyage. They, they suffered fevers um, but um, he did sail with Cook to New Zealand around the islands of New Zealand. He interacted extensively with Maori and over the course of those passages before his death they clearly discussed navigational matters intensively he talked about islands he knew he talked about how far away they were how long it took to reach them and at some point he created a diagram a map-like diagram that showed a considerable number of islands some of those islands have names that are readily recognizable like islands in the marquesas which um uh, Tupaya certainly knew of. There are other islands where the names um, um, may be inferentially identified with known islands, um, and there are others where the identification of the islands on the map is is complete um, speculation. I suppose one thing I'd say about this is that... um, There are some real enigmas in this whole story. There are enigmas about the motivations of why people voyaged early in the history of the settlement of the Pacific. And even though I think we'll know more about the the timing of those movements, I don't know that we'll ever really understand the motivations of people a couple of thousand years ago who got into canoes and ventured into open ocean to try and establish a a new homeland, a new settlement um, somewhere that they didn't even really know for sure existed. Um, And I think similarly, uh, I have to say that I find Tupaya's chart fundamentally deeply enigmatic. Um, It is an icon of the cross-cultural sharing of knowledge. It is an icon Mm -hmm. of Indigenous generosity in the context of those early encounters. It certainly exhibits um, profound and extensive geographic knowledge on the part of society islanders at that time in the late 18th century. I tend to be a little sceptical that we can extract the information from it, um, that we can extract the intelligence that Tupaya brought to its composition um, from the document itself.
0: Yeah, I, I like that image of it as an icon. It's, uh, it, it's one of these um, images or one of these emblems when we're trying to understand the history of the Pacific and the history of um, Pacific Islanders interaction with a wider world that we return to uh, again and again, as we try to understand our, our own situation Um, as, as me living in the Pacific and you um, uh, who studies the Pacific so much were, we return to it as a symbol of the ongoing work that we're trying to do uh, in our relationships in the Pacific, I think. You know, one of the um, other key figures who features in your book and gets a little bit of attention is Peter Buck, also known, I hope I get the Maori right, is Terangi Hiroa. Uh, I tend to pronounce the Maori in the way I try to pronounce Hawaiian. Uh, and he was another one of these uh, Pacific Islanders who was entangled with Western knowledge and uh, did some of the co-production, cutting across these different categories. For people who have not Heard about him? Can you tell us a bit about him and uh, his career? He's he's much later on in history; he's in the twentieth century. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, he was born in eighteen seventy seven, or just around then. There is some uncertainty about the exact date. And um, he was a remarkable political actor and scholar. He was of mixed um, ancestry. Um, his mother was of um, Maori. Uh, people of the group um, on the on the west coast near Taranaki. Um, he was an extremely able student. Um, he undertook um, medical training, but um, quite early in in life um, uh, entered Parliament. Um, At that time, as is still the case, there are certain um, Maori seats in the New Zealand parliament and he was elected to one of those seats in the years just before the First World War. Uh, He then served in the war as a medical uh, officer and um, on his return assumed a a senior appointment in the um, New Zealand medical service. but over that same period, was uh, developing great interests in um, anthropology, in research on Maori tradition and material culture, Uh, and he uh, at first won a a fellowship to join the staff of uh, Bishop Museum in Honolulu, and uh, went on to become director there. So he actually worked there in one capacity or another from 1927 um, until um, 1951. And um, he had a close... Uh, he, he had a an appointment... With Yale University at the same time, and was extraordinarily energetic in securing funding to undertake uh, research across the Pacific in um, in in the Tuamotus, in the Cook Islands, in um, the Society Islands. Um, he was, to some extent, traditional as an anthropologist. He looked very closely at technology and um, analysed the ways things were made, um, the knowledge associated with them. He, I think, in the history of the discipline, maybe gets somewhat marginalised because, of course, it was the debate in political anthropology and kinship around functionalism, around structuralism later that, that is seen as the dynamic of the discipline through the 20th century. And in that context, his artifact studies look um, a little bit are closer to, to the, the late 19th century and early 20th century work of others who focused on material culture. But in hindsight, um, given the enormous interest uh, in so many parts of the Pacific in uh, customary art forms, in taonga, in ancestral treasures, in maintaining the making um recreating forms and the genealogical knowledge that goes with them. His efforts to document um, those traditions um, have, I think, steadily greater importance uh, uh, because of the interest of so many Pacific constituencies in those forms.
0: Yes, if you go to the Bishop Museum... There is a display, uh, with the Bishop Museum being the museum here in Honolulu, where I live. Uh, there's a display which has an example of one of his notebooks, which is open, and you can see the sketches. And uh, he was an in- incredibly rigorous person with a, a tremendous eye for detail and a very, very accurate hand. Uh, this, is, this, was, this was real documentation, uh, extremely, extremely detailed and uh, specific. Uh, I have a, a slightly random question for you about about this. You know, it was suggested to me at one point that it was his medical training and his, his training in anatomy uh, that oriented him to spatial awareness and um, his ability to sort of see schematically the way in which uh, different things are constructed. As someone who's worked with so many of these museum connections, do you think that could be possibly true. That perhaps his his early training in medicine had allowed him to do this this quality of work. I, I don't think uh, he had any training as a draftsman or anything like that. I, maybe I, maybe I'm wrong about that.
1: Um, I think that may well be right. He certainly had a um, a visual intelligence and an aptitude to look closely at the artifact, and I think he saw. The artifact, a woven cloak, um, a paddle um, a basket, as something that one could, in some sense listen to and learn from, he had a an interest in the in a sense the capacity of an artifact to to relay knowledge um, i don 't know whether it was because he was trained medically or simply because he had that kind of um, um, that sort of intelligence as a person.
0: Yes, I, it's uh, it's remarkable um, when you see many of the people who uh, you discuss in this book and in your, your other works who have that ability to, as you say, listen to objects by by looking at them. It's, it's a skill which I think many academics might not be attuned to because they're so focused on the text. And in the case of uh, the kind of anthropology that I do, they're, they're thinking about listening to people, they're thinking about um, abstractions like social structure, that, that ability to uh, have and value visual intelligence uh, to produce material culture, I think is something that for academics, at least such as, such as myself, um, uh, we tend to discount and we, we might not recognize the value of that, um, both for people who are making and dealing with material culture, but also, also for those who study it, it's a unique capacity that, that we should learn to respect. Well, thank you uh, very much for this interview. It's wonderful to cover all of these, these topics with someone who is so knowledgeable, Um, but I don't want to keep you for too long. I know that you have other projects before you go. Can you tell us about what we might look forward to seeing from you in the future? What I
1: might mention is something that um, I've just finished very recently. It's not a big book. It's a short catalogue essay um, about the work of a Zealand painter who has been um, a great friend of mine for uh, almost 30 years, um, John Pooley, who lives in Auckland, um, when he doesn't live in a he's also a novelist, and he's just recently had a, a new exhibition at the gallery that represents him, Gow Langsford, in Auckland, and um, we decided to do a, a short catalogue, and I wrote a, a text um, for that catalogue um, about paintings that are actually about the settlement of a and the issues of movement, migration, and... Loss, um, John sees resonances between um, those ancestral voyages and the voyages that Pacific Islanders are making now and have made over the last 50 years. And he's very conscious of, um, in a sense, the gain and the loss that comes with movement, even if you have the opportunity to revisit the place you come from, you can't quite redress the loss of having left that homeland. So I think the, the longer dynamic of uh, population movement of people's voyages in the Pacific has all sorts of resonances now that are being explored in these extraordinarily powerful and evocative ways, as uh, his recent paintings um, really exemplify.
0: Perhaps that's a good way to end the interview. You know, um, so often when we discuss uh, voyaging uh, and the work of Apelle Ha'ofa and others, it's it's in a triumphalist mode that that points out the power and positivity of voyaging. But but of course we shouldn't underplay the fact that you know it is possible to leave and to look back and and regret and there's there's always ambivalence in this ongoing process of. Uh, of voyaging and expansion as Pacific Islanders move across the region and across the world.
1: That's right. And I'd have to say that my own thinking has really been very much enriched by conversations in some ways, the most important conversations of my adult life with artists like John, others in, in the Pacific today, the people who are making a new culture in Oceania.
0: Hmm. Well, Nick Thomas, uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. This was a a, a very informative interview for me, and I hope it will be for the listeners as well.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So once again, that was Nicholas Thomas, and we've been discussing his book, The Settlement of the Pacific, uh, Voyagers. And I would encourage you all to take a look at the book and to subscribe and uh, listen to more podcasts, both on the Anthropology Channel, and on the New Books Network more generally. Thanks very much, folks, and we'll see you in- again.